Thank you for listening to the Bible preaching ministry of Dr. Tim Pollock at the Home Church of Lodi, California. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. Our prayer is that this message from God's Word will renew your heart and mind today. Good morning, brothers and sisters, and welcome to First Day. And a glorious Lord's Day greeting to each of you. And I want to just second with uh, Pastor Luke said a few moments ago, what a tremendous reading for Sunday God gave us last week. God is good. Thank you each for your part in making what a grand success. As he mentioned, you gave, you served, you prayed, you invited. I don't know how many people I talked to from about 5 o'clock in the afternoon until 9.30 just nonstop. So many said, oh, my cousin's been coming, or my friend's been coming to the church, or... And they invited me, or my neighbor, or someone put this on our door, and so thank you. We're so grateful that you came. I know that God will abundantly bless you many times for your faithfulness. Well, today we resume our sermon series on the exciting and important topic of the commands of Christ. Today, number 16 in our series Four must-haves in the Christian life. Now, options on cars can be nice. Yet, they're not always what they're cracked up to be. Now, most options are positive additions. A navigation system, smartphone compatibility, remote start. And, of course, who doesn't love heated seats? I know I certainly enjoy the heated seats on my 1958 Volkswagen. The only thing is, they only are heated in the middle of the summer. (laughs) But the list goes on and on. Over the century-plus history of automobiles, every new feature you can imagine has hit the mark. In a major milestone of evolution of car audio, back in 1956, a record player was put into a Chrysler. Their intention was pure. The only thing was you could never use it because it was so rough it always skipped. And then a few years ago, a little more modern, Fiat decided that they were going to make the morning commute caffeinated. And so they offered an optional espresso machine right in the car, complete with all the accessories, including spoons and sugar, you name it. Unfortunately, for safety reasons, they had to discontinue. I read something about explosions in there, but anyway. Now, the fact of the matter is there are no optional features on the Christian life. However, there are things that in the first gospel, Matthew, our Lord said are weightier than others. Here's Matthew chapter 23. He said, you have omitted. The weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith, these ye ought to have done, but not to leave the others undone, the verse goes on to say. What he was saying was to be so persnickety about some religious issues, and yet to lie and cheat and steal, is the ultimate disconnect. 
As they say, it's kind of like putting lipstick on a pig. All you're doing is making cosmetic changes when there are some fundamental issues there. Or as wise Solomon intoned in Proverbs chapter 11, verse 22, as a ring of gold in a pig's snout, so is a beautiful woman that lacks discretion. His point, however beautiful the outside is, if you're lacking vital Christian graces, at the least you're just missing the whole point of what true beauty is. Now, it's a fact. There are certainly no optional teachings in the Bible. That's not what we're saying. I mean, if God said something in the Bible, He meant it, and it's worth our time and our effort, to be sure. And yet there is a complementary truth, one that we do well to remember, and that is there are some qualities that God said, really, these are non-negotiables. These are must-haves. And so this morning, in the New Testament, in the book of 1 Peter, there are four must-haves, things that God said, I command you to have these. And since we're in the commands of Christ, that's what we're doing. Yes, that there certainly are some things that are necessary in life. A police officer was being cross-examined by a swaggering attorney during a felony trial. The lawyer was trying to undermine the policeman's credibility. Officer, did you see the client fleeing the scene? No, sir. But I subsequently observed a person matching the description of the offender running several blocks away. Officer, who provided this description? The officer who responded to the scene did that. A fellow officer provided the description of this so-called offender. Do you trust your fellow officers? Yes, sir, with my life. With your life? Well, let me ask you this then, officer. Do you have a room where you change your clothes in preparation for your daily duties? Yes, sir, we do. And do you have a locker in that room? Yes, I do. And do you put a lock on your locker? Yes, sir, I do. Now, why is it, officer, you trust your fellow officers with your life, but you find it necessary to lock your locker in a room you share with these same officers? Well, you see, sir, actually... We share the building with the court complex. And sometimes lawyers have been known to walk through that room. Yes, a prompt recess was then called. <laughs> Locks might be optional in life, but there are four things that God said are absolutely necessary to have your best life. And so that's what we're going to talk about today, the four must-haves of the Christian life. I trust that you'll listen closely. You can uh, not worry about the roast. It's either going to burn or be good, but uh, you just follow now. Father, thank you for this time this morning. Lord, there are so many wonderful truths this morning, and some uh, lying on the surface so open and exposed, others hidden, and for the wise, they'll find it. Lord, would you just meet with us? And Lord, for those who are following by online, that, Lord, you'll bless them as well. Now, collect our thoughts together, and, Lord, may we be different. May we never visit these truths again. So I pray that, Lord, it will be done in a way that would not only honor you, but, Lord, it will be to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, our primary text this morning is in the book of First Peter. In this first century... 
Holy Spirit-dictated letter given to the always rough-and-ready Peter. He wrote to a very specific group of people. They had been enduring brutal, even fatal persecution in the final years of the tyrannical, self-indulgent Roman emperor Nero. This guy was one bad piece of work. Though his emperor, his uh, reign was very short, he actually committed suicide at 30. He was a vile, vile man. He actually even killed his mother, had his wife put to death. This was a very evil and dangerous time for God's people because if you didn't worship the emperor as God himself, you were in big trouble. In fact, it was so bad in the final chapter of 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 13, the Holy Spirit said, you're living in a time like ungodly Babylon. There were some prime and crucial qualities, therefore, necessary if they were going to navigate through such rough waters. Now, as we begin this morning, I think it would be wise to give a mental framework for understanding these must-haves. Now, there are some truths in the Bible that in one way could be considered secondary. Now, at least compared to something that would be primary. For example, we know that the theory of evolution is the biggest pile of anti-biblical, atheistic junk science you can imagine. And yet, did you know that you don't actually have to believe that evolution is a myth? to become a Christian? Strange, but actually that's secondary to the truth that when you embrace Jesus Christ as the Son of God, that He came to earth to die for you and paid the penalty for your sins, and by trusting Him as your Lord and Savior, He gives you eternal life. Hallelujah. That is the prime truth. Now the rest we can work on as we go along. Here's what Wayne Gruden, Ph.D., professor of systematic theology, defines as the difference between major and minor doctrine. Listen closely. A major doctrine is one that has significant impact on our thinking about other doctrines, the Christian life. A minor doctrine is one that has little impact on how we think. I put together a little chart that may help clarify what I'm saying, and I think it will also help deepen your Christian maturity, give you some discernment in the Christian life. Now, the fact of the matter is, it's not that one truth is more truthful than the other. It's just that typically, one truth may not have the impact that another truth has. Let me explain. Let me give you four combinations of thinking about and living for God. First of all, there is major doctrine and major impact. An example of what I'm speaking of would be the deity of Christ. Accepting the fact that the historical, 100% absolutely human man, Jesus, from the town of Nazareth, was also, in fact, almighty God in the flesh, that's the deity of Christ, has profound implications. It is, in fact, a major doctrine. But it also as I said, has major impact because really that is vital for understanding our salvation. Major doctrine, major impact. And then there is major doctrine, minor impact. I think an example of that might be the Trinity. 
We know the Bible teaches that our God is Trinitarian. It has been said, try to explain the Trinity, you'll lose your mind. Deny it, you may lose your soul. It is a major doctrine, to be sure. And yet its day-to-day impact, I think, is, maybe to say, often unrecognized. It's certainly there. It's probably just unrecognized. We don't usually understand the impact of it. And then there's a third combination. That is minor doctrine, but major impact. I think an excellent example of this would be the subject of financial debt. Now, there are numerous warnings in Scripture that we should not get involved in financial debt. If you want to know what debt is, you can get the little booklet out there. Now, certainly it's not a major doctrine. However, I will tell you, perhaps outside of tithing, I don't know anything that causes more negative impact on the day-to-day lives of a family. And so, while not a major doctrine, it does have major impact. And then finally, there is minor doctrine and minor impact. For example, the Bible does not have a lot to say about the type of clothing or grooming that Christians should follow. And for the most part, whether we do or we don't do those things, I don't know that it makes a huge impact on our day-to-day lives or how we make a difference in this world. I would say a footnote here about that. Have you ever noticed that almost every cult and false religion almost always have their own little special type of clothing? I mean, there's uh, dozens and dozens of examples of that. And so I think this is a minor doctrine. It's, there's something in the Bible about it. But really, it's not a certainly a major impact. It's minor. And so this morning, we're going to look at uh, things that are must-haves. They are very much major in their impact. Whether they're major doctrine or not is yet to be seen. Seven different times in ten verses... God says, these are some things that you need to have. You should have them. And I've chosen four, all of them in 1 Peter, I think will give us a good summary of that. Four ways this morning that God will be pleased, you will be blessed, and thank God this world will be touched. And so number one, here's the first truth, have character. God says have character. A clean life. Now it's been said that people are in impressed by talent, but God is impressed by character. Clean living. Let's go to 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse number 12. Let's read verse 12 together, if you would, out loud. Uh, last week we had the public reading of God's Word, and we read through that beautiful passage in Psalm 78. Someone afterwards said, you know, it has been years since I read the Scripture out loud in church. And he said that beautiful King James Version, he said, it just, he said my heart just was so blessed. And so uh, let's do that together again. Let's read God's Word together out loud. Here you have the uh, authorized version known as the King James Version. All right, ready? Begin. Having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. Notice that very first word, having. All right, this is something you need to have. This is a must-have. Having your conversation, that just simply means your behavior, your lifestyle. Having it. 
Now, if you were to go to your Blue Little Bible uh, website and look up the lexicon there, you would find that the word having means to lay hold on something, to cling to something, to closely join yourself to it, to have it. And you will notice that it's in the present tense, having it. It's not something that you have today but don't have tomorrow, have the next day and then a week from now. No, it is something that you maintain. You have it. Now, what does God expect? He says, I want you to have honest behavior, lifestyle all the time. Now, for whatever reason, the King James translators decided at different times to use different English words for the same Greek word. The word honest here is kalos, K-A-L-O-S. It means not only moral, as we would imagine honest would be, but actually it is the word good. In fact, the word is used a hundred times in the New Testament and 80 of the time, so the, the great majority of times it's translated as good. It means something that's commendable, something that's handsome or beautiful. For example, in John chapter 10, you remember that beautiful chapter where Jesus said, I am the good shepherd. It's the same word, kalos. You could say I'm the honest shepherd, but it means something that is moral, but it means something more than that. It is a winsome morality, a pleasant honesty. It means someone who not only is inwardly clean, but is outwardly clean. They're not unkind and nasty people. You know, the kind of people who, in their bed, they pray in the morning, Dear God, so far today, I've done all right. I haven't gossiped. I haven't lost my temper. I haven't been greedy, grumpy, nasty, selfish, or overindulgent. I'm very thankful for that. But in a few minutes, God, I'm going to get out of bed. And from then on, I'm probably going to need a lot of help. Amen. Not a nasty person. No, we're kind and loving and honest, not only on the inside, but winsome on the outside. Paul reminded the people in Romans chapter 14, verse 16, he said, hey, look, in this great long list of all the things that we're doing, he said, don't let your good be evil spoken of. Now, how could that happen? How could someone's good be evil spoken of? Well, sometimes people say the truth, but they say it in a way that's so nasty and rude that it's evil spoken of. Paul said, look, never quit doing the right thing. I mean, I'm not telling you to ever quit doing the moral thing, the Bible thing, but that doesn't mean you have to be rude about it. Honestly, it could simply be as easy as just saying, you know what, I want to watch the tone of my voice. You know, being conservative doesn't mean that you have to eat mean beans every morning for breakfast. Now, I know sometimes it's easy to get a little bit uh, unsettled at all that's going on in the world. And I think as you get older, you get a little crusty. Pastor Rod Elmore told the story of an older man who was standing on a crowded bus. A young man was standing next to him and said, um, What time is it, sir? The older man said, Nothing. The young man just said, All right, and walked away. The old man's friend said, Why were you so rude to that young man? He said, Look, if I'd given him the time of day, he'd want to know where I'm going. Then we might talk about our interests. If we did that, he might invite himself to my house for dinner. 
If he came to my house for dinner, he would probably meet my beautiful daughters. If he met it, I'm sure they'd both fall in love. And frankly, I don't want my daughter marrying someone who can't even afford a watch. <laughs> yeah, we can get a little rude, can't we? Now, why is it a clean heart that's so important? Well, notice what he says in this verse. The reason we should have a good heart, meaning a winsome morality, is that we live among Gentiles. Now, he's not referring to any particular people group or race. He's talking about people that are unbelievers. So he said, look, there are people out there who have not received Christ. They've not done the divine 180. You know, they were walking with the devil, and at a certain point, they turned around and accepted Jesus Christ. That is really essentially what repentance is. It is a 180. It is turning from the world, the devil, the flesh, and turning to Jesus Christ. That's the unbelievers here he's talking about, the Gentiles. What he's saying is that unsaved people are watching. They're looking for any excuse to justify in their minds the rejecting of the gospel. So here Peter says, do not give them any ammunition. It says, whereas they speak evil against you, they will speak against you. I think one of the things that I, I know I don't like it is like when people say things about you. And when unbelievers say, oh, they're this way, they're that way, it is, it's, it's hard to re receive, especially when you try to be so nice. But today as 21st century Christians, especially evangelical church members, you will be spoken of and against as never before in American history. You will be called intolerant, divisive, and if you believe the Bible, no matter how kindly you frame it or say it, They'll say you're homophobic or you're transphobic or you're misogynist. But the list goes on and on. I mean, they, they just keep thinking of new terms to call God's people. But you know, this shouldn't be any surprise to us because God said that's exactly what would happen. In fact, in this verse, notice what he says. He said, they will call you evildoers. What? Wait, an evildoer for doing right? That seems so strange. I remember growing up, People would say, if you went to church, you were a goody two-shoes, or you were holier than thou, or you think you're better than everybody else. Today, they don't say that. They say, you're evil. You're evil if you believe the Bible. You're, believe you're evil if you go that way. Here, it's not something that's unique to America. It's been here forever. Did you know that first century Christians who followed Jesus were also falsely accused? For example, did you know that they were accused of insurrection against the government? Absolutely. In the Roman government, because they did not follow and say that the emperor was their god, they were accused of rebellion. They were also accused of terrorism. At the burning of Rome, which they didn't do, they said that they were actually the ones guilty of it. They were also accused of atheism. Of all things, they were accused of atheism because they didn't respect the emperor as God, or all the other idols. They were accused of cannibalism. Strange, but Jesus, of course, talked about drinking his blood and eating his body. It was a symbol of receiving God. He talked about himself as the bread of life. They talked about that Christians hurt business. They damaged trade. Why? Because people would get saved. They'd get sober. They wouldn't buy all the 
idle regalia, and so it was bad for business. They also said they were antisocial. We're making progress, getting away from all this religious stuff, and so if you're a Christian, you're hurting social progress. They called Christians uneducated and buffoons because they refrained from all the popular vices that, of course, enlightened people get into. Now, as I've read that list, does that sound familiar at all? I mean, the truth is, you could just roll the cameras 2,000 years later. That's the same thing we're still being accused of, almost all of those things. Here's what Peter was prepping us. He said, look, as long as you're on this earth, you are in enemy territory. And the prime directive is that you must have an honest life, that is a moral life, but do it in a good, winsome way as much as possible. Here he gives the reason. Look what the reason is. Because these unbelievers will meet Jesus someday. Look at the verse. They shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. What is the day of visitation? Romans 1, excuse me, Revelation 1, 7 says, There's coming a day when every eye shall see Him. Jesus is coming. And they'll be forced to acknowledge That in fact, the believers that they had come in contact with, whom they slammed and slandered, had actually done good deeds that pointed them to God. And they'll be forced to confess that there's really no reason why they didn't accept God. They won't be able to shift the blame on the Christians because they were so rude and nasty and unkind. No, the great apostle put it about as plain as could be. Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. And verse 21, he said, In that day they will be without excuse. There will be no excuses. None. Because they heard the truth. Christians were kind and loving and gentle and as warm and as winsome as they could possibly be while still standing for the truth. And so, you've heard the word. These Christians have been great examples. My friends, you're without excuse. Because they knew God. I mean, it wasn't like they didn't know. They knew. That's how God is justified at sending people to hell. They know the truth, and they know what God wants, but they glorified Him not, it says. They chose not to glorify Him. Author Joe Aldridge says it this way. He said, Christians are to be good news before they share the good news. And so, a winsome personality, a friendliness, not a nastiness. We're going to believe the truth, and we're not going to ever back down from that, but as kind as we can. And there's, of course, times that uh, the Bible says uh, a, uh, a, a sharp tongue can drive away a backbiting uh, action. But as best we can, let's make sure that we give them a kind truth. Number one, having character, a clean life. Number two, the second must-have, Have compassion, a caring heart. One of the noblest qualities of all is that action of feeling what others feel. Seeing really is what Jesus sees. It's just looking at people through the eyes of the Lord. Here's how the great apostle said it in 1 Peter 3, 8. Finally, Be all of one mind, having, there's that word again, having. These are must-haves. The word must-have means to lay hold on something, to cling to it, 
It is a must-have. You must have compassion in this world. One of another. Love as brethren. Be pitiful. Be courteous. The word compassion there is the word sympathes. It is from two words, S-U-M, which means with, and pathos, which means suffering. We get the English word sympathy. And so really, compassion here is the word for godly sympathy. It's one of the most beautiful characteristics of our great God. When we act with a caring heart and a merciful and compassionate manner, we're acting like our sympathetic God. There's a wonderful Old Testament deep book called the Book of Lamentations. It's an interesting thing about the Book of Lamentations. You know, the very title itself can be translated, Alas, or How, or even Oh. You know, that's my favorite prayer promise in the Book of Psalms. Every time one of the psalmists says, Oh, you know, that's a prayer I can do. Oh. The idea is that there's a sense of wordless weeping, lamenting over a very sorrow sad event. The event that precipitated the book of Lamentations is the destruction of Jerusalem. And so, Lamentations is a, is a weeping. It's, a, it's not always coherent. It's, it's um, poetic. It's beautiful. But here's what it says in Lamentations chapter 3 and verse 22. Most people think that Jeremiah the prophet was the author. Uh, I have no reason not to believe that. Here's what it says. Jeremiah said, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. How do we keep on keeping on? How do you put one foot in front of another? It's the mercy of God. Why? Because His compassions, His mercy, His sympathy fail not. God's big sympathetic heart reaches out to us in so many ways. I believe there's so many different ways ways we could explain this, but I don't think there's a better way than going to that wonderful Gospel of Luke. In the Gospel of Luke, chapter 10, we have this great story known commonly as the Good Samaritan. Let me just go through that story real quickly as a great reminder of the compassion of God. And maybe we can learn something from that. In verse number 10, it says, A man went from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among leaves. Thieves. Jericho is down by the Dead Sea, 1,300 feet below sea level. Jericho is a heathen city. Jerusalem was a beautiful city on the mountaintop. It was a holy city nestled in the beautiful foothills there in Jerusalem. A very appropriate picture of mankind going away from God, going from the holy city to the hellish city going down, down, down. And the more you go down, notice what it says in verse 30, that you fall among thieves. And there are thieves that are out there that are ready to destroy every life. There in those mountains and those paths from Jerusalem down to Jericho, there are limestone caves where muggers and thieves lurk, waiting for some unsuspecting mark to come along. And so this man came along and they robbed him and they left him half dead. And by the way, that's what happens in this world when he gets a hold of people. It leaves them half dead. And that's what happens when there's a no respect for law and order and most importantly, God's laws. Society disintegrates. In America, over this past week, five people were killed and several others wounded 
by a masked man randomly in the streets of Philadelphia. One of the persons killed was only 15 years old. In Fort Worth, on Monday night, three dead, eight injured in a parking lot. In Chicago, since the beginning of the year, 300 people have been murdered. Two weeks ago, in our city close to us, San Francisco, young people took baseball bats and were hitting moms and even children in broad daylight. We live in a culture of drugs and death and darkness, and especially our large, large cities. That is the result of going away from God's laws. When we go from the holy city down to Jer- Jericho, we can expect that to happen because it's a heart problem. Look what Jesus said in verse 31. Then there came along that day a certain priest, and the priest saw him, and he passed by on the other side. The priests were the religious people of the day. Sadly, while they were teachers and had some outward morality, oftentimes they were so compromised by tradition and by their love of money and power that they had gone away from that anything that was good and truly moral. Then verse 32 said, Another man came along. He was a Levite. He also passed by. He was a man of pedigree, one of the tribes of Israel, Levi. He had a good standing in the community, but he would not be bothered by this man who was left dead by the world. And then in verse 33, Jesus said, There was another man that came along. This man, however, was a Samaritan. Ah, different story here. The Samaritans, those were the ones left behind after the great Babylonian captivity. They intermarried. They were Jewish people, intermarried or the parents, intermarried with the pagans. They supposedly had mongrelized the rich Jewish faith and culture. As a result of that, they were abused by those who thought they were pure Jewish. They were a vilified people. When Jesus said, a certain Samaritan, that reminds you, he was speaking of himself. Because Jesus, as the Old Testament prophet said, was despised and rejected of men. And so this man, this hated one, this Samaritan, this man who had compassion was none other than Jesus himself. Now notice his proactive faith. It says he went to the man. Verse 34, Then he poured oil and wine on the man's wounds. Now remember, in this parable, it's a parable, so many of the things we can take to the bank with us. They're very symbolic. In the Bible, what does oil represent? We know most often it represents the Holy Spirit and comfort. God, the Holy Spirit, is the great comforter. He is the compassionate one. Or as the prophet said, the very balm of Gilead. And then in verse 34 it says, He poured in wine. Now what does wine represent? It represents the blood of Jesus. And then our inerrant Bible says that the good Samaritan took this man, he set him on his beast, and he brought him to the inn. Now, please notice with me for a few moments. The good Samaritan met the man. He was beaten up. He was left for dead by this world. The good Samaritan was riding, and the man was on the ground. But after he met that man, the good Samaritan met him. The man was riding, and the Samaritan was walking. What an important and beautiful picture of the substitutionary ministry of Jesus Christ. He takes my place and I take His. 
thank God for that great ministry. In verse 34, it says he brought him to an end. And I tell you, when Jesus gets a hold of our life, he brings us to the place where we can eat and have joy on the good things of the Bible. And then it says in verse 35, I will take care of him. And when thou spendest more, I will come again. I will repay thee. A wonderful reminder of the redemption of God. I'm so glad this morning that Jesus came to where uh, I was. The book of Romans says no man ever sought God. If he didn't seek us, we would never be saved. Now, to be true, we have to receive that. But the Bible says that Jesus, who is that Samaritan, he sought him out. He had compassion. And I am so glad that when he pours his oil of the Holy Spirit and his blood of his wine, uh, the, uh, the wine of his blood upon us, then he takes us to the house of mercy. Look what it says in verse 36 and 37. It says, which of these showed mercy? Verse 37 says, it was the Samaritan who gave the mercy. And that is exactly what Jesus Christ has shown every one of us. True compassion. Not a fake compassion. Not a virtue signaling as our world does today. Our world is such a mixed up world. They, were say, they say they're having compassion on women. And yet they will take the life of an unborn child. I don't believe that baby would agree that that's compassion. You know, the fact of the matter is, Jesus has true compassion. And outside these doors, you'll find people who will rob and will kill and will destroy families and children and marriages. Every pornographer is one of those who will rob and steal. Every drug dealer is one of them. And as far as I'm concerned, every trans activist is one of those as well. They are wounding people domestically and psychologically, and the children are battered and bruised and are wounded spiritually. How I thank God for a place like here, a compassionate, loving place like the people of the home church and Life Training Academy who pray for others and encourage them and bless them like you did last week. God bless you. I was telling my wife the other day, I don't know the older I get, the longer I've been in the ministry, I've noticed an interesting thing happen to me as I'm out and about, especially pretty much anywhere I am. But when I see a, a pretty much of a good group of people together, maybe they're in a store, large store, or they're walking along some um, shore or something, uh, we're watching them. The feeling I have in my spirit is, oh, I wish that they would be saved. I wish that they would come to the home church. I wish they could enjoy the love and the peace. I know if they come inside those doors, they'll be so loved. They'll be so transformed by the power of the Word of God. I long for them to come to this 12-acre oasis of faith where they'll find true friendship, real compassion. I, 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 just, I want to go up to them and just say, you, you really need to come. I, I, you may have a good marriage. You may not have a good marriage. I don't know. But if you want the best marriage, the best family, get on to that church, get involved, and let your life be transformed. My heart just reaches to them. I hope you do too. Friends, I just feel so blessed, and I want to share that with people. Have a character, a clean life. I don't feel like a great Christian. I'm just telling you a testimony. Four must-haves in the Christian life. 
a clean life, a caring heart, and number three, a clear conscience, a courageous testimony. It's been said that a clear conscience is the best pillow. You sleep real good. This truth is clarified in 1 Peter 3, verse 16. Let's look at it. Having, again, there's that word. It's something you got to have. And it's in the present tense. It's not something you sometimes have. Have it. All the time, must have it, a good conscience. Have a clear conscience. Why? Because they're going to speak evil of you. Count on it. They're going to call you evildoers. But they'll be ashamed that they falsely accused your good lifestyle in Christ. One of the basic reasons Christians often get defeated, I think, is because our conscience condemns us. A Christian with a guilty conscience, whether truly guilty or imagined, has a very difficult time telling others about the excitement of being a Christian. It's only when a spirit is honest and open with God. And by the way, to not be honest and open with God is so silly because God knows everything anyway. You might as well confess it. You might as well just tell Him. And it opens up the channels of blessings in your life. One of my Bible heroes is the redhead from Bethlehem, King David. That great penitent Psalm 51 lays out for us as clear as a bell the power of a clear conscience. Look at verse 10. Created me a clean heart, O God. This is a prayer. Oh, God, there's that prayer promise. Oh, he just said, oh, this is from his soul. Created me a clean heart, O God. Just wash everything. He was a believer, but he was just asking for a good relationship to be restored. A renew, a right spirit. He wasn't saying, save me, I'm lost. He was already born again. He was saying, I just want back that renewal, that revival. Cast me not away from thy presence. I, I want to feel close again to you, Lord. I can't stand the distance. Take not thy Holy Spirit from me. My friend, in the New Testament, there is something called the grieving of the Holy Spirit. There is something called the quenching of the Holy Spirit. Don't do it. Don't do it. You want to be close to the Holy Spirit. You want Him all day long in everything you do. Look at verse 12. Restore unto me the joy. I want joy again. I want my spirit full of joy. That's a ministry of the Holy Spirit. Galatians says that is one of the wonderful gifts of the Spirit. The joy of salvation. Uphold me with thy free spirit. There is a freedom in our spirit that happens when we get a clear conscience. There's nothing like it. And what's the result? Verse 13. I will then teach transgressors thy ways, and sinners will be converted. My friend, you can never be a soul winner if you don't have a clear conscience. You have to have... Now, you say, does that mean I'm perfect? No. That is not what that is saying at all. It just means a clear conscience. Here's what Paul said in the second epistle to Pastor Timothy, chapter 1, verse 3. He said, you know what I thank God for? I thank God I serve from my forefathers with a pure conscience. He said, you know what makes me so grateful? That I serve God with a pure conscience. That without ceasing, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day. It takes a pure conscience to be able to serve God effectively. You'd say, does that mean perfect? Not at all. Nobody's perfect. I don't know of anybody who could say like Jesus, 
In John chapter 8, verse 46, which of you convicts me of sin? <laughs> if any of us said, said that, we'd have a whole line of people lined up. We, we know people would be able to say, oh, well, you were mean, or you were this, or you were that. What does it mean then to have a clear conscience? You want to write this down. It means I am able to say that there is no one, God or human, to whom I have not, who I have knowingly and biblically offended, and I have not tried to make it right. It means that there is nobody that can say, whether it be the Lord or another human, that I have knowingly, biblically offended and not tried to make right. That may also mean need to make restitution, but it means to say something about it. The fact is, more and more in today's Christian world, in time antichrist society, you are going to be accused. You are going to be vilified and slandered because biblical beliefs are increasingly considered hate speech. And we must do our best to not be hateful. We must remember that many people don't act better because, frankly, they don't have Jesus in their heart. And as a result of that, they've been lied to. They've been convinced. You take these precious young people growing up, for the most part, in public schools. They have been lied anymore. It's just crazy what many of them are getting. We Thank God we have some wonderful Christian public school teachers in our school. But, and they're trying to do their part. But so often they're being told so many terrible things often by some very evil, evil people. Here's what Paul said in Acts chapter 23 and verse number 1. He said, you know, the community leaders here can say anything they want to, but here's what I know. I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Now you can call me this, you can call me that, go ahead, but I will tell you, before God, I know that I have not offended anybody wrong. Because that's a clean heart that emboldens. One of my favorite stories is that of a little boy who came forward in a church service. He was professing his faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. They took him to the counseling room and they wanted to make sure that he was truly saved and really understood it. Are you know you're a Christian? He said, boldly, yes, I know I'm a Christian. They said, well, how did you become a Christian? How did you become saved? He said, well, I did my part, and God did His part. They said, well, can you explain what you mean? He said, well, I did the sinning, and God did the saving. And friend, that is really who we are as people, aren't we? We are the sinners. Thank God He's the Savior. And so today, just go to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm a sinner. First of all, I want to be saved, and then after that, Lord, I just want to clean heart. And if you'll let Jesus clean your heart up, I tell you, you'll get such a courageous spirit. Perfect? No, of course not. But you will have such this power to make a difference in this world. And people need it. They've been lied to so much. It's about time somebody tells them the loving truth. Have character. The first must have a clean life. Number two, have compassion. A caring heart. Number three, have a clear conscience. A courageous testimony. And finally, number four, have considerateness. A correct behavior. It is really astounding the power that simply being polite, having good manners, has in transforming lives. Here's what Peter called in chapter 4, verse 8. He called it fervent 
charity, fervent agape, fervent love, above all things, have. There it is again, have it. This is a must-have. Now, there's other things that are good, but these are must-haves. Above all things. So, above all things. Here he's giving that little reference again. This is a, this is a big thing. You may not think so, but this is a big thing, God said. Above all things, have it. Present tense. Never lose it. Don't, don't get up one day and say, I'm tired of being full of uh, Christian charity. No, he said, above all things, have it. Constantly hang on to it. For charity covers the multitude of sins. In the morning when you wake up, when you're tired, you have fervent charity. When you go to bed at night and, boy, you're just ready to hit the sack, you have fervent charity. In the middle of the day, when people are coming at you, you have fervent charity. When all the kids are driving you crazy, you have fervent charity. When your husband or your wife is about to make you go cuckoo, What do you do? You have fervent charity. What is the word charity? It is the Greek word agape. You know what that word is. That is God's love. That is when a believer can love the unlovely. That is when you love in spite of insult or injury. That is mean when you love even when it's not returned. The great, wonderful Christian author Amy Carmichael said, If I have not compassion on my fellow servant, even as my Lord had pity on me, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I can write an unkind letter and speak an unkind word without grief or shame, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I myself dominate myself and my thoughts revolve always around myself, if I'm so occupied with myself, then I know nothing of Calvary love. If I take offense easily, if I am content to continue in a cool unfriendliness, though friendship is possible, then I know nothing of Calvary love. O flame of God from all that dims thy Calvary, O Lamb of God, deliver me. Give me the love that leads the way, the faith that nothing can dismay. The hope no disappointments tire, the passion will burn like fire. Let me not sink to be a clod, make me thy fuel flame of God. Fervent An interesting word. It's a word that means intense. The Greek word actually was a word for muscles that are completely extended while like a horse while it's galloping. Idea here is that you're going to be pushed to your limit, but keep loving. Keep loving. Fervent agape is not based on pleasant emotions or feelings like a family bond. No, it is meaning self-sacrificing, caring, good manners, no matter what the case. Agape is volitional, meaning it's an act of the will. It's not emotional. It's courtesy, but it's more. Without love, courtesy is a cold thing. Love makes what every virtue what they ought to be. Now this morning, if you want to be pleasing to God, if you want to get a blessing for yourself, and if you want to make a difference in this world, there are four must-haves. A clean life, a caring heart, a courageous testimony, and a correct behavior. Now, how is God going to spread the message to this world? How is it that God's going to be pleased? How is it that this job is going to be done? Here's what 1 Corinthians 1 verse 27 says. God had chosen the weak things of this world to confound the things which are mighty. You know, it's amazing how often it's the simple messengers of the cross 
that humbles the world. People get the idea that somehow the only people that can do anything good are Mary Poppin Christians. You know, practically perfect in every way. But God says, no, focus on these four and you will make a huge difference. I'd like to close with a personal testimony this morning. I was thinking this week, I don't know if it was Pastor Mike coming or what it was, but I was thinking this week, just shy of 50 years ago, God allowed me to be on staff at the Central Baptist Church of Pomona. It was a thriving gospel preaching church. I was fresh out of Bible college, and I was a young staff pastor. I had a variety of duties. One of them, the pastor asked me to found and run a senior citizens ministry, and they called it the Jolly Sixties. It was a wonderful time. Well, I had an opportunity to preach, and so preach I did. I preached, as they say, hell hot, heaven sweet, sin black, judgment sure, and Jesus saves, I did. In that group, there was a delightful Hispanic, long-time Christian couple. They just were like two peas in a pod, and they went everywhere together. They loved me, and I loved them. All our years apart didn't seem to make any difference. We just loved each other. I, in my early 20s, they, in their mid-80s. Often after I would preach, and boy, I mean, I would let those folks have it, I'll tell you what. They would, uh, as they were leaving, they would say something like, Pastor, Tim, you sounded like Paul Rader today. Well, that just made my day. Paul Rader was one of my heroes. Or they would say, you sounded like Billy Sunday. Well, both of them were in the early 1920s and 1930s. And let me tell you a little about Billy Sunday as we leave. Because I think it talks about this idea of not always maybe being perfect, but still being able to be used of God. Maintain those priorities. Billy Sunday was kind of the Billy Graham of his day, only on steroids. He was a former baseball player. He didn't go to seminaries, not highly educated. And he often used really very slang language. He'd run around the platform and he'd holler, he'd say ridiculous things, probably things he shouldn't have said. But biographers say that over one million people testified they accepted Christ in his campaigns. It was amazing. One biographer who was a contemporary told about one particular story. I want to tell you that story. He said they were in a meeting and Billy was up there just preaching like he did, like, like a wildfire. He gave the invitation, and people just streamed forward to give their hearts to Christ. One of the people that came forward was an old man who had a long, flowing white beard. The biographer, who was over to the side, kind of watching, he was chronicling everything, he said he took note that for some reason Billy Sunday was mesmerized by that man. He couldn't take his eye off of that man's beard. And so here, people were coming down, they were accepting Christ, they were weeping, they were praying. Billy Sunday got so fascinated, he got down off the platform. He went down there, kneeled next to the man, he grabbed his beard and went, honk, honk. Now, how in the world can anybody do, how could a pastor do anything like that? You'd say, that's just not right. That's just, it probably wasn't right. But, but the interesting thing is, God did use that man. 
Now, friend, here's, I'm simply telling you, I don't think you ought to go around and grab people's beards saying Hong Kongs. But what I am saying is that when it all comes down, it's not all the bells and whistles. It's just that passion for God. Those core qualities that make a difference in our life. A clean life, a caring heart, a courageous testimony, and a correct manner. You do those four things, and maybe just maybe you'll be one of those Paul Raiders, one of those Billy Sundays that God will use in a mighty way. Would you bow your heads with me, please? We hope you enjoyed listening to the preaching and teaching from God's Word today. You can get more information about our church and about starting a relationship with Jesus Christ at www.thehomechurch.net. From all of us here at The Home Church in Lodi, California, thank you for joining us.